Yes, I know what you're all thinking. Why is there a podcast being posted on Saturday when normally we don't do podcasts on Saturday? Well, the answer to that is twofold. One, I have not been doing the podcast as regularly this last week. As you all know, we had a new uh, addition to the family. We have a little puppy. And that changes your life like having a child changes your life. So we're just getting into the routine. And so that's put a great deal of demand on my otherwise uh, leisure time that I can devote to doing the podcast. And also, uh, rather than just blow it off completely and pick it up again on Monday, I wanted to do something for you because today I do have a little time to do a podcast and I wanted to highlight a specific event. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so by going either to the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, depending which device you use. Search for the NPO podcast and subscribe. You can leave a review, make a comment, and please do give us some good reviews and comments. The more we get, the faster the show will grow, and the more we'll be able to bring you in the way of content, interviews, and so forth. Maybe even set up a call in line. In the alternative, if you would rather not use your native podcast aggregator app, go to one of those aforementioned app stores and simply download the free Podbean app. Podbean.com is the hosting service that myself and many other podcasters use. You can subscribe just as easily that way. Whichever way you subscribe, you will always be notified whenever a new show or a new episode is uploaded, and that way you won't miss a thing. This past Thursday, March 25th, The appellate division in the state of New York handed down a decision regarding the lawsuit filed by former New York City police officer Daniel Pantaleo against the NYPD and then Commissioner James O'Neill, who fired him on the recommendation of trial commissioner Rosemary Maldonado following a trial at one police plaza in connection with the death of Eric Garner back in July of 2014. Now, those of you in the New York metro area are probably very familiar with this case or have heard of it. Those of you who listen outside the New York area, those of you down under in Australia where we have a great audience, are probably not familiar with this case. So let me give you a little background. It has become rather common practice here in the city of New York to sell what is known as Lucy's. The city of New York, being a very, very blue leftist city, taxes all tobacco products incredibly high. Despite saying that uh, tobacco is legal, despite saying that it's harmful for you and that it can kill you and it has all sorts of collateral damage, health risks for those who are not engaged in smoking from secondhand smoke, the city of New York, the state of New York, indeed the entire country has done nothing to make cigarette smoking illegal. I have no problem with that. People have an assumption of risk. But having done that, the city of New York taxes the devil out of it. And that's one of the reasons why they don't want to make it illegal, because the minute they make it illegal, they'll lose all that tax revenue. So they keep it as a legal product and then enact rules and regulations that make it virtually impossible for people to consume this legal product. You can't smoke in a New York City public park. You can't smoke within 50 feet of the entrance of a building. You can't smoke in the workplace anymore. You can't even smoke in a multiple dwelling that you live in if the smoke migrates from your apartment and somebody else complains they sniff it. 
then you have all sorts of problems. So it's really an upside-down world. And people are resentful of paying these taxes. So people take untaxed cigarettes that they get from the South, and they sell them loose on the street for a sum of money, cheaper than people would have to pay for an entire carton, which could be something on the order of, I don't know, 15 or $20. I remember when we could buy a pack of cigarettes for 75 cents when I was a kid. A whole carton might cost you 6 $7. Now it's, it's a whole different kettle of fish. Might even cost you less than that for a carton. I can't remember. But in any event, Eric Garner, a man who was no stranger to the law, he had 30 prior arrests for various offenses, was selling Lucy's out in front of a store that legally sold cigarettes. Now, this man, uh, understandably, was upset that Mr. Garner was doing this, and so he called the police. The police came and told Mr. Garner he had to leave. He didn't leave to be under arrest. He didn't want to leave, and he basically told them, we're not doing this today. I'm not going. I'm not under arrest. Well, this has become very fashionable now, and this sort of conduct has been encouraged by the likes of reprobates like Al Sharpton, who think that people have the right to simply say, I object. I'm not uh, going to consent to this arrest, and therefore, you can't arrest me. Well, I've got news for you. There's a law on the books in New York State and similar laws in other municipalities and states in this country called the no-sock law. And that means even if you know the police officer has no right to arrest you and is making a bogus arrest, you cannot resist it. This was passed by the state legislature, not by the New York City Police Department or any other police administrative official in any of the many departments throughout the state of New York, but by the duly elected state legislature and signed off on by the governor. That law has been on the books for as long as I can remember. It was done as good public policy to promote order. We have apparatus set up, administrative apparatus, for people to challenge the validity of arrests after the fact. But even if a man walks up to you and says, I'm arresting you for the Kennedy assassination, and you weren't born until 15 years after Kennedy was assassinated, and you know this, you can't object. And rest assured, once the police officer takes you before the desk and tells the sergeant that he's arresting you for the Kennedy assassination... The officer is probably going to be sent off to psych services and you're going to be released and probably get a very big check from the city of New York. So it's really not profitable, productive or productive or advisable to object either without force or with force to arrests being affected by legitimate lawful authorities, even if you think it's bogus. Well, Mr. Garner did this and this negotiation went on for some time. Finally, one of the officers grabbed Mr. Garner about the neck. Now, Mr. Garner, I should say, at this point, was a rather large man. He was about six foot four, six foot five, weighed well over 300 pounds, and he was not in the best of health. He was an asthmatic for a very long time and apparently had a bad heart. And this was certainly known to him, perhaps not to the officers, but known to him. Now, when this officer grabbed him about the neck, he didn't grab him about the neck uh, to choke him. You could see the video. There's a very famous video on, on YouTube. He is pulled to the ground from the neck. And you can see they're almost at one point in danger of going through a plate glass window of the store I just mentioned with the window visibly buckling. And then they pulled him back about the neck to get him down to the ground away from the window. And once the man was on the ground, the officer let go of his arm around his neck. In fact, I don't think he even had his hands locked together. If you look at the entire elapsed time, at most, Officer Pantaleo 
had his arm around Mr. Garner's neck for about 15 seconds. Mr. Garner is then very famously said to have made the statement, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I think he said it seven or eight times. And he said it all after Officer Pantaleo had released his hold. So obviously he could breathe because he was able to utter these words seven or eight times. And he wasn't affected in any way by Officer Pantaleo's hold that damaged his voice box or prevented him from speaking. Nevertheless, after a trial, Commissioner O'Neill sided with the trial commissioner, a woman it turns out he had a personal relationship with in the biblical sense. Additionally, if you read the writings of the commissioner, it's the writings of a woman who's working backward. She knew where she wanted to end up and wrote her decision to lead to that predestined end. Likewise, Commissioner O'Neill used a sophistry of reason in order to arrive at his decision and justify it to himself, if not to the rest of us. This trial, this decision, took place back in August of 2019. Well, actually, July of 2019. The lawsuit was filed in August of 2019. Commissioner O'Neill, then Commissioner O'Neill, held a press conference to announce the firing of Officer Pantaleo which is almost unprecedented. A press conference to announce the firing of a police officer was only done once before in the history of the New York City Police Department under eerily similar circumstances. Following this firing, I wrote a detailed analysis of this argument, of the case, And I believed I proved conclusively in that argument, read by any reasonable person, that there is no way that Officer Pantaleo could have been justifiably found guilty in the administrative trial room of the New York City Police Department. The local district attorney's office in Staten Island, where this incident took place, had already convened a grand jury and could sustain no indictment, a no true bill. The Justice Department investigated this case for five years. Loretta Lynch got involved. Eric Holder had been... No, it was Loretta Lynch had gotten involved. Eric Holder was already gone. They started, and then Loretta Lynch took over. And after an exhaustive investigation, even the Department of Justice could find no wrongdoing on the part of Officer Daniel Pantaleo that would justify going forward with a civil rights trial. And so it fell to the New York City Police Department and its administrative trial process to throw a bone to the feeding frenzy of racial sharks out there like Sharpton and to appease the masses. I will now like to read for you the article I wrote, which is up on my website, nationalpreviewonline.com, and I'll leave it to you to judge for yourself if I made the effective argument and whether you agree with me or with Commissioner O'Neill. It is my opinion that by the time I'm done, you will not be able to agree with Commissioner O'Neill. So now I take you back to the time of this writing in the summer of 2019. The article is entitled The Pantaleo Decision, the NYPD's First Step Down the Road to Irreversible Decline. 
This past Monday morning, NYPD Police Commissioner James O'Neill made a decision that will forever define him in the eyes of the public, the City of New York, and police officers everywhere, when he announced that he was accepting the recommendation of Trial Commissioner Rosemary Maldonado and terminating Officer Daniel Pantaleo. That definition, however, will not be a flattering one. When Commissioner O'Neill announced his fateful decision, he also took the first step for the NYPD on a journey that will lead to its inevitable and irreversible decline. Following his death five years ago, the name Eric Garner became a rallying cry for anti-law enforcement groups everywhere. Some of these groups are legitimate. Most, unfortunately, are nothing more than front groups for ultra-leftist organizations, which have as their ultimate goal the dissolution of law and order in this country and the destruction of American society as we know it. Neither of these two things can be allowed to happen, and they can be prevented as it pertains to the country as a whole. However, it will now be the norm for the city of New York. Fun City will now truly be fun for those inclined to commit crime, those who flout our laws and cross our borders and remain here illegally and become public charges, and for those who wish to abuse the system in general. For the rest of us, those who work full-time, sometimes two jobs, and are forced to live in this now Sodom and Gomorrah-like city and forced to pay for it all, life will be far from fun. In fact, it will be downright miserable. Unless you are truly blind, if you live in New York City, you have already seen this taking place. The bums and panhandlers who have been eradicated are now back in force, stopping cars and intimidating the drivers into making, quote, donations, lest they damage their cars. Public urination is no longer against the law, and dousing uniformed police officers with buckets of water has become the new local pastime. Police officers have the most difficult job of all civil servants in municipal government in that they are the principal enforcers of the law. To achieve this mandate, they have been granted the power to exercise a great deal of authority over the civilian population by state and local governments. But this power comes at a price in terms of public relations. Law-abiding citizens are not generally bothered by this and recognize it as necessary. Whereas criminals, anarchists, and those who exploit people's passions on race for personal gain depict the exercise of authority as indiscriminate and racist. This racial dynamic was on full display in the handling of the Garner case at all levels, which makes Commissioner O'Neill's decision all the more puzzling and appalling. From the outset, Mr. Garner's death received an incredible amount of attention, not only from the media, but from state, local, and federal authorities. The first of these to come to a determination was the state of New York as represented in this case by the Richmond County District Attorney's Office. On August 19, 2014, the Richmond County DA impaneled a grand jury to investigate Mr. Garner's death. On December 3rd that same year, the 23-member grand jury panel voted a no-true bill with respect to Officer Pantaleo's actions. A no-true bill by a grand jury means that having heard all testimony and evidence presented, it found insufficient evidence of any prosecutable criminal conduct. At the federal level, things were a little more complicated. 
The borough of Staten Island falls under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, which is based in Brooklyn. An investigation by that office found insufficient evidence to warrant a federal criminal civil rights prosecution. It communicated this finding to then-Attorney General Loretta Lynch, who, upon being informed of this, had the case transferred to the Civil Rights Division in Washington, D.C. for additional investigation and review, with an eye towards prosecuting the case. Yet by the end of Ms. Lynch's tenure at the Justice Department, no decision to prosecute had been made. A new administration came to power, and with it, a new AG, Jeff Sessions. The case languished for several more years under his aegis, finally coming to the current Attorney General, Bill Barr, for final determination, literally days before the five-year statute of limitations was due to expire. While the Civil Rights Division pushed for a civil rights prosecution, the Office of the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York maintained its position that no charges should be filed. The reason for this was simple. They, not Washington, would be responsible for bringing any federal prosecution to a successful conclusion. And their review of the evidence as experienced trial attorneys told them this could not be done. Such infighting among attorneys does not bespeak an abundance of clear and convincing evidence of guilt, but rather a decided lack of it. Ultimately, A.G. Barr sided with the U.S. attorney from the Eastern District and declined to prosecute Officer Pantaleo due to a lack of evidence. All of the foregoing regarding the odyssey of this case through both the federal and the state criminal justice systems is extremely important to bear in mind. It means that a thorough investigation by the only two sovereigns with jurisdiction to undertake a criminal prosecution against Officer Pantaleo, both found insufficient evidence to do so. In other words, they found no prosecutable criminal conduct. All of this information was known by the NYPD and its administrative trials office before Trial Commissioner Maldonado rendered her decision, and that raises some serious questions and concerns about the veracity of her conclusions and what her true motives were in coming to them. In the press conference, Commissioner O'Neill made a point of mentioning that in evaluating Officer Pantaleo's conduct, Trial Commissioner Maldonado concluded that, quote, his use of a prohibited chokehold was reckless and constituted, quote, a gross deviation from the standard of conduct established for a New York City police officer. Commissioner Maldonado further concluded Officer Pantaleo's conduct caused physical injury that meets the penal law threshold and that his recklessness caused multi-layered internal bruising and hemorrhaging that impaired Mr. Garner's physical condition and caused substantial pain and triggered an asthma attack. This conclusion by Commissioner Maldonado is as troubling as it is flawed in that it contains three fatal infirmities. One, as it regards the use of a prohibited chokehold by Officer Pantaleo, it is clear from both the video and testimony that his original and probably only intent was to employ the seatbelt maneuver, quote, an authorized technique he was taught in the police academy 
for the purpose of taking Mr. Garner off his feet so that he could be subdued and handcuffed. Owing to Mr. Garner's superior size and weight advantage, the situation became dangerous as both men impacted a plate glass window, which can be seen visibly buckling under their weight. In order to avoid crashing through the window, which could have resulted in Mr. Garner, Officer Pantaleo, and other officers present possibly crashing through this window and suffering fatal injuries from the glass, Officer Pantaleo maintained his hold, which now had become an impromptu chokehold due to the physical dynamics of the struggle and not as a result of any intent on the part of Officer Pantaleo. None of this is in dispute, can clearly be seen on the video, and according to Commissioner O'Neill, was reasonable and acceptable to both Trial Commissioner Maldonado and himself. Once on the ground, it is the position of both the Trial Commissioner and the Police Commissioner that Officer Pantaleo should have immediately released his hold around Mr. Garner's neck and changed it to something else. If one watches the video of the arrest and uses a stopwatch, you will note that from the time Officer Pantaleo first places his arm around Mr. Garner's neck until the time he ultimately releases it, no more than 15 seconds elapses. By Trial Commissioner Maldonado and Police Commissioner O'Neill's own admission, the first portion of that arm to neck contact, approximately half of it in fact, was reasonable and acceptable. We are now left to deal with the remaining half or approximately seven to eight seconds of Officer Pantaleo's conduct on that day. Eight seconds of an otherwise stellar career. This is critical to understand because it is these eight seconds upon which both the trial commissioner and the police commissioner are hanging their respective hats in an attempt to justify Officer Pantaleo's dismissal. Eight seconds that were heavily reviewed at both the state and federal levels. Once on the ground, Mr. Garner can be seen moving along the ground as if attempting to crawl away. To release a hold at that time would have essentially been tantamount to releasing Mr. Garner entirely, since it is extremely difficult to reacquire a new hold on a human target that is attempting to move away from you. Had Officer Pantaleo done so, Mr. Garner may have regained his feet, which would only have prolonged the struggle, and use of force experts will tell you, the longer a struggle goes on, the greater the risk of injury to all parties. In the heat of confrontation, with adrenaline on full, time gets distorted, and as such, in light of this, and the brevity of this portion of the struggle, eight seconds, no reasonable person could call this reckless conduct. Two, the decision by Commissioner Maldonado relies on her attempting to impute criminal conduct to Officer Pantaleo. This is evidenced by the quote-slash-paraphrase from her decision by Commissioner O'Neill when he said, His use of a prohibited chokehold was reckless and constituted a gross deviation from the standard of conduct established for a New York City police officer. Commissioner Maldonado further concluded, Officer Pantaleo's conduct caused physical injury that meets the penal law threshold and that his recklessness caused multi-layered internal bruising and hemorrhaging that impaired Mr. Garner's physical condition and causes substantial pain and triggered an asthma attack. As stated above, 
The foregoing statement by Trial Commissioner Maldonado was clearly designed to suggest that Officer Pantaleo's conduct was criminal in nature in order to justify her decision to recommend his dismissal. But it is beyond both a Commissioner of Administrative Trials' purview and training to decide issues of criminality, and this is especially true and applicable in Officer Pantaleo's case. The reason being, the State of New York had weighed in on this matter over four years earlier, represented by the Richmond County DA's office as previously stated. An investigation of the matter presented to a grand jury of 23 citizens on Staten Island resulted in a no-true bill, meaning no prosecutable uh, criminal conduct on the part of Officer Pantaleo was found. In light of this, for Trial Commissioner Maldonado to attempt to characterize Officer Pantaleo's conduct during the Garner arrest as criminal by using language veritably lifted from the New York State penal law and case law, quote, use of a prohibited chokehold was reckless and constituted a gross deviation from the standard of conduct for a New York City police officer, B, Officer Pantaleo's conduct caused physical injury that meets the penal law threshold, is both deceitful and duplicitous. Additionally, as mentioned earlier, the arrest of Eric Garner was exhaustively investigated by the U.S. Department of Justice under two different administrations, with neither being able to find prosecutable criminal conduct on the part of Officer Pantaleo. Accordingly, for Trial Commissioner Maldonado to find that Officer Pantaleo's conduct rose to the penal law threshold is not only duplicitous, it borders on being defamatory. She cannot substitute her judgment for those of the authorized federal and state authorities. Her decision is clearly the work of someone who was writing a novel, the final chapter of which had already been written for her and had to work backwards in order to ensure it flowed to a predestined end. Three, in keeping with this false narrative of criminal conduct created by Commissioner Maldonado, the commissioner, the police commissioner that is, makes the necessary determination that all of the multi-layered injuries and substantial pain Mr. Garner suffered were incurred solely due to the actions of Pantaleo and no one else, and specifically during those eight seconds that she deemed reckless. The notion that the aforementioned injuries could have been caused during the period of authorized arm-to-neck conduct contact or at some other point in the struggle or even prior to it seems not to enter into her thinking. This is also critical to understanding this decision because it is beyond the current state of forensic science to determine exactly when Mr. Garner's injuries occurred. The best that science can say is that they occurred shortly before his death. Shortly can be as long as 24 hours before death. But no pathologist in the world can say definitively whether an injury occurred eight seconds earlier or eight seconds later during the course of a struggle. In other words, there is no scientific way to prove whether the injuries that may have precipitated Mr. Garner's asthma attack and subsequent heart attack were caused by Officer Pantaleo during the eight-second period trial Commissioner Maldonado deems reckless. As much of, as any of the other two in, uh, fatal infirmities in Commissioner Maldonado's decision that I alluded to earlier, this one may be the hardest to defend. To base a conviction and a decision to recommend dismissal,
on that which cannot be proven with any degree of certainty by the available science of the day is not a conviction by a preponderance of the evidence, as the NYPD's administrative trial room requires, but rather conviction by speculation and innuendo, completely unsupported by any empirical evidence, scientific or otherwise. It should be clear to anyone that this decision was preordained and that Trial Commissioner Maldonado worked backwards in her reasoning towards the result desired and promised on national television by New York City Mayor-turned-presidential candidate Bill de Blasio. Commissioner Maldonado was never a police officer and I suspect has never had to subdue someone or ever been in a fight. Police Commissioner O'Neill, however, the self-proclaimed cop's cop, has done all of these things. Further, he fairly boasted at the press conference of his rather substantial and competent staff. All of what I have laid out here in this article was doubtlessly known to the commissioner, or if not, though this is unlikely given his long experience with the department, could have easily been discerned with the aid of his staff, and it probably was, but was discarded and ignored. In making his decision to fire Officer Daniel Pantaleo, Commissioner O'Neill clearly had as his primary objective not the neutral dispensation of justice as he claimed, but rather not being fired himself. Obviously, keeping his job as police commissioner of the city of New York means more to him than truth and justice. Not exactly the sort of thing one would expect from a cop's cop, if he ever was one, given the way O'Neill threw Sergeant Hugh Barry under the bus for shooting a female EDP less than a month after becoming police commissioner. But that's another story. In the course of defending his decision and attempting to justify it, Commissioner O'Neill seemed to congratulate himself on a job well done as police commissioner. He noted that there has been a transformation in this city, and indeed there has been. To listen to the commissioner's tone, though, it is clear he thinks this transformation has been a positive one. If that is true, then Commissioner O'Neill is even more out of touch with reality than I originally thought. Just this past June, I was returning home to my Manhattan apartment after having been away for the weekend. As I exited my car, I noticed one of my building's maintenance men hosing down the sidewalk, unusual for a Sunday evening. I thought perhaps an inconsiderate dog owner had failed to pick up after his pet, but I was mistaken. In actuality, a homeless person, a bum, I believe is the operative word, had decided to make the sidewalk in front of my building his own bathroom. Apparently, this is no longer considered against the law in the city of New York and is perfectly permissible. Just to put this in perspective, I do not live in what is considered a bad neighborhood. In fact, I live in what is considered a very desirable area of Manhattan. If this is representative of the transformation referenced by Commissioner O'Neill, he has no reason to be proud and every reason to be ashamed of himself. Just last month, New York City police officers in uniform were doused with buckets of water, harassed, mocked, and humiliated for all the world to see with the aid of YouTube. Instead of realizing that the failure to act on the part of the police officers involved was a direct result of the state of paralysis created by the current administration's predilection for criticizing its police department, siding with criminals, and generally failing to support law enforcement. True to form, the current administration accused the cops of cowardice 
and disgracing the uniform. To make matters worse, both the current and past chief of department weighed in on the situation, towing the company line, siding with the department and against the cops. Quote, any cop who thinks that's all right, that they can walk away from something like that, maybe should reconsider whether or not this is the profession for them, said Terrence Monahan, the chief of department. We don't take that. Police officers are human beings first and cops second, and it will always and should always be that way. They are fathers and mothers, husbands and wives with families to support who depend on them. In the current climate, no police officer is going to imperil himself or herself and risk losing their job by taking action. Had the officers involved taken action, and had those who doused them resisted and fought as they doubtless would have, and had one of them been seriously injured or, God forbid, killed, the outcry from the NYPD's upper echelon would have been predictably different. We don't take that, would have quickly become the officers involved overreacted and acted recklessly. After all, it was only water. If Chief of Department Monaghan and former Chief of Department Anamone think that they have a right to expect police officers to defend themselves and the department's good name when assaulted and wronged and act like cops, then the men and the women of the NYPD have the right to expect their police commissioner to act like a leader and not a lackey. At a time when New York City police officers are under assault on the streets and in the media and in desperate need of a show of support from their department, none was to be had. Any chance of allaying their fears of abandonment and restoring confidence in the ranks that they would be supported and given the benefit of the doubt when forced to act was shattered by Police Commissioner O'Neill's decision to fire Officer Daniel Pantaleo. Commissioner O'Neill could have single-handedly rallied an entire nation's law enforcement community, suffering from sagging morale, a consequence of withering and vicious attacks by anti-law enforcement groups in the media, by sparing Officer Pantaleo, even if it meant resigning his post the following day, if that's what it took in order to do the right thing. Had he done so, Commissioner O'Neill would have been revered in American law enforcement, becoming a larger-than-life figure, instead of being reviled as he is now. His refusal to stand up to the communists in City Hall and the anarchists who threatened riots if Officer Pantaleo was not fired was an act of cowardice of biblical proportions and utterly self-serving. In authoring his decision, Commissioner James O'Neill wrote the epitaph for the NYPD and is now completely incapable of and totally unfit to run it. Having abdicated his authority in order to assuage the political appetite of his master in Gracie Mansion and the avarice of race baiters like Al Sharpton, the image of the cop's cop is gone forever, if it ever existed in the first place. And like so many other American icons, the once mighty NYPD and its finest have passed into history. That's what I wrote back in the summer of 2019 to explain the firing of Officer Daniel Pantaleo and how it cannot be justified. Approximately one month after rendering this decision, 
Commissioner O'Neill resigned himself, which makes everything he did all that more contemptible. If he knew he was going, why not go out like a man? The decision by the police commissioner is final and cannot be appealed. Firings can be appealed, can be appealed, but like criminal trials, acquittals cannot be. If Commissioner O'Neill made a decision that Officer Pantaleo should not be fired, that decision would not be reviewable by his replacement. This was a contemptible act by a contemptible human being and laid waste a fine young man who had not a single civilian complaint his entire career. His entire career retroactively judged and viewed through a lens that is only eight seconds long. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.